Thank you for listening to this week's Freedom Church podcast. We hope it helps and inspires you. The Armour of God series, this is week four, is it? I think. Um, And today, next slide please, we are looking at the helmet of salvation. Now we've heard the same passage This is based on a passage in Ephesians chapter 6. We've heard the same passage read every week so far, usually from the New International Version, because that's what Hannah put in the slide set. Today I'm going to try reading the same passage from another translation called The Voice. If you haven't come across it, it's very like the New Living Translation. It's very, very readable and understandable, and even more so, I would say. It's produced by a mixture of Bible scholars and accomplished English writers. So they're aiming to combine accuracy with fluidity and re- readability of a modern, you know, modern literary work. So let's read, and I apologise because something went wrong on the slide. It's off the bottom of the slide. So I'll read it to you, uh, the same passage that we've been studying. Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, brothers and sisters, draw your strength and might from God. Put on the full armour of God to protect yourselves from the devil and his evil schemes. We're not waging war against enemies of flesh and blood alone. No, this fight is against tyrants, against authorities, against supernatural powers and demon princes that slither in the darkness of this world and against wicked spiritual armies that lurk about in heavenly places. And this is why you need to be head to toe in the full armour of God so you can resist these evil days, uh, resist during these evil days and be fully prepared to hold your ground. Yes, stand Truth banded around your waist, righteousness as your chest plate, and feet protected in preparation to proclaim the good news of peace. Don't forget to raise the shield of faith above all else, and so you will be able to extinguish the flaming spears hurled at you from the wicked one. Take also the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray always, pray in the Spirit, pray about everything in every way you know how, and keeping all this in mind, Pray on behalf of God's people. Keep on praying feverishly and be on the lookout until evil has been stayed. I think it's just fantastic. Uh, and it's very accurate as well, but fantastically readable in English. Um, I don't know if anyone's mentioned this before, but the, the, the armor of God, we find it in the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, is also found, some of it, in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah 59, verse 17... It says, he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. And here the writer was actually talking about God himself putting on the armour in order to do battle against rebellion and lies and injustice. So this is not just imagery invented by the Apostle Paul, it's, it's throughout the Bible. So last week, Sim spoke on the shield of faith, which I, I, I learned some stuff I hadn't learned before, and I'll mention some of that later. This week, we're talking about the helmet of salvation and... Yeah, we got them on the screen. I found the, the Weekend Warriors again, the same website probably Sim found. And I've even brought some with me. Look, this one doesn't fit, I'm afraid, but this, <laughs> this one does. <laughs> okay, so this one actually is more of a gladiator's helmet, and this is probably more the, the more traditional centurion. Quite likely, that is more, more, a more, more accurate representation of what Paul had in mind, is that, that metal helmet with... Um, cheek pieces to protect the cheeks, and this interesting thing across here, which was to protect against a sword coming down on top of the head, it would deflect the sword, and at the back you could see there's something to protect the back of the neck, so it was quite a protective helmet. Um, 
So, the helmet, what does it protect? It protects the most vital part of our body, our head. In battle, that's pretty important. If you, if you lose your head, then you, <laughs> that's the end. But in a spiritual context, what does that mean? I believe it means protection for our minds and our thoughts. And that is more important than ever today, as mental health problems definitely seem to be on the increase. Paul mentioned them, and I've looked, I did a bit of research on the internet, because I've heard this, um, uh, I found different statistics all over the internet about mental health uh, prevalence and trends, and it actually wasn't easy to find a consistent picture. You've may, maybe heard a widely quoted figure that one in four people suffer from mental health problems. And I'm not sure if it's actually true. It, it maybe was referring to the proportion of sufferers that actually seek help for their problem. Anyway, I found a couple of clear statements in a survey conducted of the NHS in 2014. It said one adult in six, one adult in six has a, had a common mental disorder, meaning anxiety, depression, phobias, OCD, self-harm, about one woman in five and about one man in eight. So that's, that's the, that was, there was a, definitely a survey and they got their statistics. Um, and since 2000, the overall rates of common mental disorders in England have steadily increased in women, but remained largely the same in men, apparently, in, in 14 years. What they did say, in one adult in three with these disorders was re reported as using um, mental, taking mental health treatment, e either medication or, uh, or other treatments. And this is a very big increase. Um, compared to the, pre, uh, the previous report. It was one in four, now it's one in three. So a lot more people are getting treated for it. Um, and, the, and the really big increase is mostly medication, people taking antidepressants and things like that. Um, it's not just an issue in the UK, um, an issue everywhere. Apparently, according to the World Health Organization figures reported in 2016, they said somehow they knew there was in 1990, 416 million people suffered from depression or anxiety worldwide. And in 2013, it was 615 million. So, um, in, well, 20, 23 years, a big increase. The focus, as you, I'm sure some of you are aware, much more recently, is on the increase in mental health issues among young people. Not just teenage suicides, but uh, even issues among children of primary school age. It's a big issue. And Christians are not immune, let me tell you, and I'm sure you know, they're not immune. Both old and young. Uh, maybe some know, heard of Rick Warren, who wrote the 40 Days of Purpose um, book. He had a young son that committed suicide successfully. Um, and, uh, and he was obviously brought up in a Christian home, son of a, a Christian pastor. We may ourselves know, or even be Christian parents, whose children have tried the same thing. If I did a show of hands in this church, I'm not going to, uh, this church meeting this morning, we would find, I'm sure we'd find a significant number of people have suffered or are suffering from mental health issues, possibly taking medication or other treatment, I would certainly put my hand up to that. Okay? I had over two years of clinical depression between about 2010 and 2012. And actually, it started long before that. I just didn't recognize what it was. Now, we may think it's not so surprising that Christians uh, you know, may suffer more than the general populace especially with depression, because we're not only concerned with our own personal issues and our family issues, we also are concerned with what God thinks of us. That's a big, you know, we might think it's harder for us. Um, and it actually can be very hard for a Christian who suffers in this way. After all, as Sim told us, I think, last week, we're supposed to be happy clappy, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> and if we're not feeling happy clappy, we can sometimes feel very isolated and looked down on by others and second class. 
But I think the main reason that Christians suffer particularly is because our minds and our thinking are the primary focus of the enemy's warfare against us. And he is going to attack Christians more than anyone else. He's quite happy with the rest. He's, he's going to attack us more than anyone else. He is the father of lies. He is the master of deception. And this is his most common and effective form of attack. It's far more likely to see, succeed in turning us away from God than any attacks against our physical well-being. If we are not very careful, it's so easy to believe the lies and deceptions that he whispers into our heads and fall prey to these attacks. And we come back to the soldier's equipment again. That shield of faith that Sim spoke on last week, and I said he, he, he's stolen all my lines, but actually, as God's led me to prepare this, I'm speaking on something different than I expected. It can be used to deflect the obvious spears and arrows of the enemy, but it is not a complete protection on its own. If the soldier tried to hide behind it all the time, as Sim did behind David Ritchie, if you were here last week, if he hid behind it completely, he would not be able to see anything or where he's going. In fact, he would be completely ineffective as a soldier. He needs to, at some point, look over the top of his shield. He needs to expose himself, and that's why the protection of the helmet is so important. As you, as you look over your shield, don't take that too far spiritually, but I mean, the sense is, to be a soldier, we've got to, be able to, we've got to make ourselves vulnerable. And Christians can do this. They can retreat from the world and hide in a holy huddle, maybe in a monastery or somewhere or where, but we would not necessarily be effective witnesses for Christ if we did that. In reality, I think the enemy would still find a way to get us, even if we tried to do that. So we can deflect the obvious attacks of the enemy with the shield of faith and remembering those scriptures and those amazing statements that, that Sim talked about. But what about the ones we don't see coming? We can't deflect them because we don't see them coming. What about the ones that sneak up from behind or, or even come out of the blue unexpectedly and catch us unawares? That is when we need the helmet of salvation uh, for protection against these subtle and often unseen attacks. We need to have it firmly on our head, and it is an automatic protection if we do. Satan is very clever. He doesn't always attack, obviously, from the front. Because uh, so, we would easily recognize and reject those if he did. He can sneak up slowly over years into your mind. He can feed you with lies and deceptions that we fall for without noticing. And certainly when I look back on it, as I mentioned, that I saw that my depression had started years earlier, um, years before it became critical. I had just not recognized for what it, it, for what it was. So today's topic is of vital importance and relevance to us right now because God has given us a defense against even these undetectable and subtle attacks or attacks that come out of nowhere before we have time to react. If only we would keep it firmly on our heads. And of course, that is the helmet of salvation. So let's, what exactly is this and how do we put it on our heads and use it to protect our minds? Fortunately, uh, the Bible, or Paul in this case, has given us another important key to understand it. And it's in another letter to the church in Thessalonica by, uh, that he wrote. And if we have the next slide, uh, slide five, that's the one, isn't it? Yes, there it is. Okay, sorry. He again mentions it. So, for you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to darkness and night. So be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. Night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. But let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. And I, that's the New Living Translation. The NIV is a more traditional form. It says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope 
of our salvation, hope of salvation as a helmet. So it's not the salvation itself that is our protection. It is the hope of our salvation or the confidence of our salvation, and that's what forms our helmet. And this is why, although I generally love the New Living Translation, we often use that in this, in this church, I don't really like what it's done with this Ephesians 6 passage on the arm of God, particularly verse 17 I just read. So we go to the next one. This says this. This is the same verse in the New Living Translation. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, you may say I'm picking hairs, I, I, or whatever it is, splitting hairs. <laughs> but it's reversed the word order, as of some other translations, and it gives the impression that salvation itself is our protection. In other words, we might assume that we are automatically protected once we are saved, and that is so not true. If that were the case, once we had decided to follow Jesus, there would be nothing for a Christian to do or to put on to benefit from this protection. That is another great deception of the enemy. In my experience of depression, my depression, and the best way I would describe it when I went through the worst time, was it was a complete loss of hope. That was what it was. That's my best description. No hope for the present, no hope for the future. Everything is hopeless. And actually, God, after I came through it, and that's another story I've told before, and I'll probably tell again, God brought me through it, out of it, not through anything I did, but he, he showed me this, that actually depression is the natural state of man without God. If you don't have God, and you really knew the truth of where you were going, you would be depressed. Okay? So many people are living in this world, they don't know God, and they're living actually with a false sense of security. And that's pretty, so that's the natural state of man without God. But if, uh, you know, obviously if everyone like that, nobody would survive. But um, why then would we experience it as believers? And why? Why? We're going to look at that. One reason we have seen that it can hit believers so hard is it's seen as unspiritual. We think we should not be feeling this. How, well, how, I've got, you know, I believe in God, I've got salvation. Why am I feeling this way? Well, don't be worried. You are in really good company. Let's look at a few people in the Bible who experienced depression and anxiety. Let's start with David. Um, slide seven. Yeah, David. You know, the God said he was a man after his own heart. He experienced anguish, loneliness, fear of the enemy, and guilt over sin. And there's a couple of quotes for him in, in the Psalms. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. And Psalm 42, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And then Elijah, the great and mighty used prophet of God, he experienced fear and depression and suicidal thoughts. In 1 Kings chapter 18, if you read it, and if maybe some of you know the story, there's an amazing story of him defeating single-handedly, with God's help, the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and shutting up the sky, uh, and then releasing, you know, getting God to release the rain when the time is right. The next thing, the very next thing, in the next chapter, in 1 Kings 19, he's running for his life from Jezebel, who he's afraid of, into the wilderness, and ends up in this state. And this is the next, uh, yeah, he says this. He came to a broom bush, this is Elijah, sat down on it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, I'm no better than my ancestors. So there, that's Elijah. Amazing things. And then he was 
deeply depressed and, and fearful. Jonah, now he's the one who disobeyed God and was swallowed by a huge fish or a whale. And then he saw a whole city repent under his preaching. He also experienced depression and suicidal thoughts. In Jonah 4.3, now Lord, he says this now, take away my life for it's better for me to die than to live. Excuse me. Job, the next slide please. Um, this is the one who, of whom God said he is the most righteous in all the earth. There's no one in all the earth in his day like him. And despite this, terrible things happen to him. And if you read the story, Joe, it's a very interesting story about why they happened. It certainly wasn't his fault. He experienced through this time terrible anxiety, depression and fear. And at various points in the book of Job, you read this. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. And in Job 30, terrors overwhelm me. My dignity is driven away as by the wind. My safety vanishes like a cloud. And now my life ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. Next slide, we here see Jeremiah. Sorry, we're getting the point here. Jeremiah, another great prophet who experienced deep depression and said this in Jeremiah 20. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. And verse 18. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see this trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? These were great believers, great men of God. And finally, the, the person who wrote the book of Ephesians, Paul himself may well have possibly experienced depression uh, Slide 11, he says this, and you think what was on his mind when he wrote this. I'm quoting out of context. If you read on, you'll see what his solution was. But he says this, We don't want, do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. In feed, we all felt we had received the sentence of death. There are many and varied reasons for becoming anxious and depressed, many, many ways into it. That may be physical or hormonal imbalances called by like postnatal depression and all that stuff. It may be situational, things happen to you, bereavement, sickness, redundancy. The symptoms of depression, as I know, are all very similar. Once you're there, you, you recognise the symptoms. You can sometimes feel so bad that you, you just can't get out of bed. You physically, even though you know it's mental, but you can't get out of bed, you can't do stuff that you normally should find easy. And the way out of depression may also be different and it certainly or can be aided by medication and other therapies and, of course, by prayer. But ultimately, the solution is the same, which is this. It is regaining, getting back that sense of hope that you lost so that things don't look hopeless, so you see a hope. But this is the biblical meaning of hope. It is not the British meaning of hope. It, it's not like, I hope it won't rain tomorrow or I hope win, the Saints win the FA Cup. It's not that sort of... Hopeless hope. Sorry, oh, or is it Portsmouth? I can't remember. Sorry, is it Portsmouth? Yeah, Pompey. Uh, is that as hopeless as? It's not that sort of hope. Biblical hope is sure and certain. And you'll find throughout the Bible, the scriptures say it's not a forlorn or a wishful thinking. It's not about wishful thinking. It is based on the promises and the unchangeable truths of God. And on the next slide, we'll leave it. read a few verses that tell us that. Romans 15. I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. There's a famous hymn based on that. Firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. It's a firm and secure hope. It's not a wishful thinking. And the voice again, that same verse, okay, which says a little bit more, explains, I've just realized, this is the song we're going to finish with, quotes this, which is uh, entering behind the veil. 
That hope is real and true, an anchor to steady our restless souls, a hope that leads us back behind the curtain. This is the veil in the temple where God used to be, behind the veil, where God is. And it says, as the high priest did in the days when reconciliation flowed from sacrifices in the temple. Now, I've said this before, maybe last time I spoke or before. Faith actually looks backwards. When we have faith, we're looking back at what God has said in his word and what he's done in our lives. And that gives us faith because we know he was faithful in the past. But hope looks forward. But they're both based on the same truths. Truths of the word of God and our experience of his reality in our lives. Past experience builds our faith that we can trust him now and gives us a sure hope that we can trust his promises about our future. But let's remember, it's, it's not just hope in general that we must put on as a helmet, but the hope of salvation. So what is that? We say, we are saved. We hear this term, I'm saved, or we need salvation. But we're not just saved in isolation. We are saved from something. When you rescue someone, you're rescuing them from drowning or whatever. You save them from something. In CAP, in cap we're rescuing people from debt we hope. Um, we're safe in something, and it means we need rescuing. To be saved, you have to need rescuing. So what is it that we're saved and rescued from? We are saved and rescued from our sin and our separation from God. That is what we're saved from. And again, like the natural state of man, the natural state of man without God is actually to be dead in our sin. We are saved from what we deserve, which is ultimately death. And let's just see a couple of scriptures that, that talk about that. I keep forgetting to look there. <sighs> Ephesians again, same book but earlier. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. That's the natural state of man in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But then the following verses in, the, in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, um, says this, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, we can't work for our salvation, it's a gift from God, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So this is what our hope is in. Our hope is in the salvation that Jesus paid for on the cross. So we are saved from something, but we are not just saved from something. We are also saved to something. We are saved to eternal life. And in the next slide, we read probably the most famous verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Amen. Thank you. But there's a problem with that verse. There's a problem with that. The trouble with we take that verse in isolation, and particularly in most English translations, is that we tend to think 
that Jesus is just talking about being in heaven. But actually, he was doing so much more than that. In the whole John 3 passage, whenever having eternal life is mentioned, it is in the present continuous tense. It is not just talking about future in heaven. For the believer, eternal life starts right here and right now on this earth. I, we can start living right now in the reality and the power of our eternal life in Christ. Now, I actually, when I discovered that present tense, I studied that passage in detail and even dared, I even dared a re, to reattempt a, 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 a retranslation of the most famous verse in the Bible, just to make this clearer. So, if we can, you can't buy this one, okay? And I, let, I'll read, this is my verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone believing in him might prevent themselves from being destroyed and be living in the reality of having eternal life. That's what it is, living now and for the future. So the hope of salvation that we need to put on as a helmet is the sure and certain hope of eternal life in Christ that starts now, continues tomorrow, and the next day, and the day after that into the future, until we are with him in heaven forever. And that certain hope of eternal salvation is what protects our minds against the lies of the enemy. We just need to have that, and it, by wearing it and having it on our head, those are the lies that tell us that we are not worthy, that all is lost, that we have really blown it this time, that God doesn't care about us or has given up on us and that we only deserve to suffer and die. Okay, so if this sure hope of salvation is our protection, how is it that sometimes it doesn't seem to work and the lies of the enemy get right through and infect our mind and lead us into this anxiety and depression and worse? I found it fascinating, again, what Sim pointed out last week, that the shield, the helmet and the sword, have to be specifically taken up. They didn't normally carry them, only when they were in battle or going into battle. They were not worn by the soldiers all the time. When they were off duty, they put them down. Now, that may be possible for a Roman soldier, but it is not possible for us. We are in a constant, eternal battle. So we need to always carry them and always wear them. There is never a reason to take them off or put them down. It is dangerous to do that. Um, I think Sim might have quoted this last week from 1 Peter. Scripture says, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. So I think that the only way that the enemy can get through to our mind is either if we have never put on the helmet of salvation in the first place, or we have put it on at some point and somehow we've let it slip or taken it off. If we have no helmet on, if it's not effective, then the devil come, can and will come in and play havoc with our minds and our thinking. Now, I'm going to look at those two, these two things. We never had it on, it fell off, we took it off, whatever. And I'm going to look at the second one first. For those who are not aware, there is a running and sometimes very heated debate in Christian theological thinking that's been going on for at least 500 years. Right? It's typically phrased in the question of whether you can lose your salvation or not. And the two sides of the argument are often referred to as Calvinism, from John Calver, a theologian and pastor who lived from 1509 to 1564, and Arminianism, from Jacob Arminius, another theologian who lived from 1560 to 1609. So only a very slight overlap between the two. I'm about to give a vast oversimplification of these two 
around some thinking. But the Calvinist side basically says you can't lose your salvation. It's often summed up in the same phrases, justification by faith alone and once saved, always saved. I, once you become a Christian, whatever you do in life, even if you completely backslide and, and never have anything to do with God again, you are certain to end up in heaven with God. The Arminian side basically says that you can lose your salvation or you never had it in the first place, e.g. if at some point you reject the faith or to work, fail to work out the faith that you claim to have. You may be pleased or disappointed to know that I'm not going to try and resolve a 500-year controversy today. <laughs> Suffice to say that there is good scriptural support for both sides of that argument. And there are sound theologians and ministers throughout history and even today who fall in both camps and still argue among each other about it. And all I'm going to say, to misquote the X-Files, is the truth is out there somewhere. And I think it most likely that it is the wrong question to ask. And neither camp has got it completely right. And I am going to do some more on that another time. But anyway, we are not actually discussing today whether you can lose your salvation, but whether you can lose your hope of salvation, and that's something different. And that one I know for certain that you can, because it happened to me. And when I went through that depression, and I looked back, and it was actually the early parts of it where God was speaking to me, or the devil was speaking to me, I don't know, but I realized that actually I'd taken my helmet off. That is what I'd done. I started doubting my salvation. I started feeling guilty about things I knew I'd done wrong. They were real things. I'd, the fact that I hadn't read my Bible, I, I hadn't prayed, I hadn't, you know, I'd done deliberate sin, done things I shouldn't have. Um, I didn't murder anyone, but you know, they were things that I knew were wrong and I did them. And I, I realized that when I first became depressed, I got a massive attack of the enemy. I mean, he, I had literally... So doubted, I thought basically God had given up on me. And I believed it. I believed it as strong as I don't believe it now. I thought God, and he allowed me to believe that because it was important I went through that experience. I had taken my helmet completely off, and the enemy played havoc with my mind. He had free reign. Now, there may be many ways that contribute to you losing your hope of salvation and the protection of the helmet. And I'm going to briefly mention three that I can think of I was certainly indulging in all of these in the years that led up to my depression. So the first one is this. Engaging in fear and worry by continually failing to take God at his word. Let's read uh, the next slide. Matthew, um, Matthew chapter 6. Famous passage. Jesus said this, okay, and he meant it. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to his life? The next slide. And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and gone tomorrow, is thrown into the fire, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he no, not, not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and the world runs after all these things, and some other ones. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as a well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. 
It's very interesting. He's talking about worrying about very practical things. What I shall eat, what I shall wear. It's not like, you know, are my children saved? You know, will Kim Jong-un fire nuclear weapons at, at America? It's very practical stuff. This is worry. And God has promised to provide our needs. And if we stop believing that or we keep doubting that, then we are, the helmet is slipping. Here's another one, uh, another couple on the next slide. Um, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. That's the truth. Cast your worry on him. Don't worry about it. Hand it to him. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. If we continually fail to believe these promises of God and to do these things and indulge in what I believe is effectively the sin of fear and worry, it is sin. We are doubting God at his word. We're not trusting him. We are saying we don't trust him to keep his promises. We are loosening the straps on that helmet that hold it in place, and we are serious danger of it slipping off. The next one, ignoring our salvation or failing to work it out. So slide, uh, next slide, please. Hebrews 2. We get a few hard verses to read, but please be encouraged because the truth, you know, you are hearing the truth as well. It says this, we must pay most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and very miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And in Philippians 2, we had a teaching on Philippians a couple of years ago. And I think I spoke on this particular verse. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. It's really important. We do not work for our salvation, but we need to work it out. We need to put it into practice. We need to do everything that we can to live as a true follower of Jesus. And he will give us a strength to do that. We should not ignore our salvation and treat it with contempt, which was bought for us at such a great price to God and to Jesus. So this means very practically in our everyday lives, in the situation we face, we must try and live as Jesus did. It includes reading and getting to know God's word, the Bible. It includes spending time in prayer and learning to praise and worship him. If we fail to do this, and I know I did over the years that led up to my depression, we are again loosening the straps on our helmet. We're losing the effectiveness of our helmet of salvation. Sorry, I'm going a little bit long here. <laughs> I said I speak too much. Finally, third point, and probably the most serious one, committing deliberate sin. Now, you may not be aware that in the Old Testament, all the various, they had sacrifices. They used to sacrifice animals for sin, but there was no sacrifice for deliberate or willful sin. There were animal sacrifices coming, accidental sin, I, you, you unintentionally or accidentally committed it without malice or forethought, and then you realized, or someone pointed it out to you, and you confessed it, and you could sacrifice, and your sin was covered. Or unknowing sin. I, you didn't even know it was wrong when you committed it, and found out later, or someone pointed it out to you, and there was a sacrifice for that. But there is no sacrifice for knowing an intentional sin. In fact, what the Bible calls high-handed sin, the only Old Testament penalty for that was death. And all we, though we as Christians believe that the death and blood of Jesus, we know the death and blood of Jesus covers all sin, and that includes even deliberate knowing sin. 
If we continue to engage in deliberate sin after we have been saved, God regards this very seriously indeed. We are, in fact, ourselves willingly and knowingly hammering those nails into the body of Jesus on the cross where he died for our sin. And this is the most sobering scripture. We've got some more encouragement later. There's a very sobering scripture that talks about this. And by the way, the, the Arminians love to point you at this scripture. Okay, slide 23. Dear friends, these are the ones who think you can lose your salvation, by the way. Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we receive knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. That's what I said about the old, no longer any, there's no sacrifice if we deliberately sin after We've been forgiven everything by Jesus. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God, have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy, and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. Now, this is a massive scripture of debate about who that's talking about, whether they're real believers, but I think it's fairly plain that's referring to that Old Testament fact that the penalty for deliberate sin was death. And, and um, as believers, we should be trying our best. We should not, if we can at all help it, engage in deliberate sin. If we continue to engage in intentional, knowing, deliberate sin, uh, you know it's wrong and you keep on doing it, we are taking a very dangerous risk with our hope of salvation. We should never mess about with deliberate sin. We are seriously damaging and possibly even completely removing the helmet of salvation. And I know, and again, I said I didn't murder anyone, but I was engaged. I did some things that I just knew were wrong. And I thought, well, oh, and, and carried on. And they were, you might think they're small things. You know, I bashed a car in a car park, didn't mention it. As, sorry, as an ex-policeman in the Army, I can't remember the number plate. So that sort of thing, you know, and oh, all those little things that we do. But I knew it was wrong and I still did it. Um, we are, I removed my helmet salvation over, over many years. It didn't come off straight away the first time I did something wrong. It's not like that at all. And there's many other scriptures. I haven't got time to go into about what we do when we sin. We confess our sins and he is just and able to forgive our sins. So, but let's not mess about. This is quite serious. So I'm now going to come back to, finally, the first reason you may not have the helmet of salvation on. If you have never put it on in the first place or have never known the certain hope and assurance of salvation, then the solutions are actually very simple. And firstly, I'm going to think, if you think you are a follower of Jesus, so you, but you do not know or understand that certain hope of salvation, you're not sure, it's called assurance of salvation, that you really do believe that you are saved now and forever, then here are a few scriptures for you to meditate on and trust. And actually something that I and others would be very willing to pray about, because we need, as believers, this hope, sure hope on our head. Not just a, a forlorn British type, I hope it's all right in the end type hope. So let's just read a few scriptures. Um, John 5. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's a promise. It's not a doubt. And here's a, another famous, and the Calvinists love to quote this one, okay? The people on the other side of my argument. My, Jesus said this, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. As I said, there's good scripture on both sides of the argument. Slide 25, and here's another, another couple. And this is the will of him who sent me. That's right, isn't it? 
that I shall lose none of these he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. And finally, and this is the testimony, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Once you get these truths deep into your heart, you will be able to put on that hope of salvation absolutely firmly, and it's a protection against those unseen attacks that you don't see coming. Secondly, finally, if you know that you are not yet a follower of Jesus, and you haven't got the helmet on at all because you've never had the opportunity to put it on, you only need to know and obey the simple truth of that famous scripture we looked at earlier. This is the, the proper version, not mine. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And those of us who came to our foundation course, it was only a few, said we learned that actually the Greek there is not believes in him, it's literally believes into him. Jesus is using a phrase that's apparently not found anywhere else in the Bible or in Greek literature. It is actually a bad use of the Greek and even English language, but it is great theology. We must believe into the person of Jesus to ask him into our lives and to become one with him and to commit to following him wherever he leads us. That is what it is to become a believer. And to do this, there's only three basic steps. To repent of your sin and, to try, and from trying to run your own life, your own way without God or with God at arm's length. To believe and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross to forgive your sin and to ask him to come and help you to come into your life as Lord and to enable you to follow him for the rest of your life. Then you can know that you are saved and have eternal life and can firmly put on the helmet of the, helmet of the hope of your salvation. You got that one? Yeah, the helmet of the hope of your salvation. Firmly on your head like that bloke. So, so let's just... I want to just pray, really, and, and appeal for those uh, three, three classes of people... Um, you may not feel you're any of them. I want to first pray now for those and appeal to those who have never put the helmet on, who don't know they're saved, who don't know salvation. And just want to pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here like that, that you would enable them to come to know you just today. Lord, and I, and I just, yeah, I really pray for that. And I, if you want to talk to someone, please do talk to me or Sim or Tom or any of the other leaders. And I want to also pray for those who think they're saved, but they don't know for sure, and I don't have assurance. And so, oh Lord, I pray for those that are in that position, that they would know for certain, they would take those truths of your word, and they would believe and understand them. You would give, fill them with your Holy Spirit such that it speaks truth to their mind, and they know, and they have that helmet that is on, put on firmly, so it can't be removed. And finally, I'm going to appeal to and pray for those who've let, like I did, like have let their helmet of salvation slip, or even taken it off who feel they are losing or have lost their hope of salvation. And perhaps they're descending into a spiral of guilt and anxiety, worry and depression. And Father, I just pray for anyone who may be in that case, because the one thing you taught me is, you know, it's never too late. There's nothing hopeless. Nothing is impossible with you, Lord. And, that it, you know, until we die, there's always hope, Lord. Uh, and, and, and that's what you show me, Lord. And so I just pray for anyone that, that they would really commit their life recommit it to you, to do those things that firmly attach that helmet 
to their head, to stop doing those things that cause it to come loose and fall off, Lord. I just pray you give them strength right now and in this meeting, in Jesus' name. And just to end, I'm going to read the psalm that, it wasn't the psalm that turned me around, but it, it helped me so much. And after God, in fact, after God turned me around, um, and it was reading a different psalm, when he showed me something I completely missed, um, this became my constant prayer as I was coming out of depression. Read the whole psalm. It's Psalm 51. It's the one David wrote after he committed adultery with Asheva. He was pretty low. And he'd murdered her husband as well, yeah. Um, he was pretty low. And he prayed this. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Amen. For more information about Freedom Church, please go to www.freedomchurch.uk. Thank you for listening.